on episode seven of the Insure Tech Geek podcast, talking about computer vision and hot dogs with Graham Leslie, the chief geek at JBK Labs. The Insure Tech Geek podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own research and development team into technology that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. And back for another fun episode on a great day. And back in the studio with us again, Mr. Graham Leslie, Chief Geek at JBK Labs. We've had a couple of weeks of just awesome interviews, and we are back with another awesome guy, our Chief Geek at JBK Labs. Graham, Graham, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully. A little hungry. We shouldn't have done the hot dog episode before lunch. I know, right? This is like should have done this like over lunch, <laughs> and maybe a beer. <laughs> I like where your head's at. That would have been better. Yeah, I I actually like podcasting with whiskey. It's Joe Rogan. I blame him. He had his whiskey episode with Elon Musk, and and uh, I I've had a couple of uh, of whiskey episodes, and it always loosened the lips a little bit and uh, free flows the conversation. But we're not doing that today. Stone cold sober. We've got some water in our hands and no food in front of us. And yeah, we're going to talk about computer vision and hot dogs today on the Insure Tech Geek podcast. So just a reminder for everybody out there, uh, Graham Leslie is our chief geek at JBK Labs. That's our director of JBK Labs. That's all of our research and development here at JB Knowledge. We're a 211-person technology firm dedicated to the insurance and construction industries. And so uh, Graham's been around here for uh, for a while now, since 2014, so five years, and uh, started as an intern, went to team lead. Now he's director of research here and uh, kicks butt and takes names every day. Um, Also shares my love and passion for uh, cars and trucks and uh, likes to, to tear them apart and rebuild them. And uh, he's uh, super into that. So it's good to have you on the day. Today, Graham, we're going to talk about computer vision. This is a topic you've had uh, quite a bit of an opportunity to do research on. Yeah, you've got it. What do you think is the lay definition of computer vision for the uninitiated out there in the insurance space that are listening to this? So a camera is a pretty simple concept, right? You take an image, and computers have been able to do that for a long time. Digital cameras weren't that much of a revolution in terms of computer vision. But being able to recognize what's inside those images, that's a pretty tricky problem. Back in 1966, they didn't think it would be that tricky of a problem, but uh, it turned out to be a little wrong. <laughs> yeah, right? So you've got pictures being taken for quite some time. I, I, I really enjoy, by the way, uh, applying computer vision to really old photographs. Uh, in fact, computer vision techniques have been used as of recent to reconstruct things, mainly ancient things that were destroyed in wars and battles that were happened to have been photographed. And there's some really neat applications of computer vision, but computer vision really starts with, you know, what lasers and non-lasers. And so it's, it starts with light, right? And it starts with light hitting some kind of sensor that then does something, right? This is really fundamental physics here. And, and if you look at like, you know, how old photography is, which tells you how how many years we can apply computer vision to, it's uh, pretty old. Uh, it, there, there's, 
I like going back to the original photographs. Uh, the, the, the coining of the word photography is usually attributed to Sir John Herschel, 1839. Of course, its uh, origin is Greek. It means uh, drawing with light, which I think is a really great way of describing it. And then computer vision then interprets that drawing with light, right? That's exactly right. And that interpretation is the very, very difficult part. It's very easy for us as humans, but uh, for computers, not so much. Yeah, and, and we're we're edging up on the 200-year history of photography. 1826 was the very first photograph made in a camera. Uh, it was uh, in France. Joseph Nietzsche, I think is how you say his name, but you can criticize me later for that. Uh, it was taken from the upstairs window of his estate in the Burgundy region of France. And, and so, you, have, you, you know, when you look at the number of photos taken and you look at the exponential growth, we're definitively on... And you're you're from Pittsburgh. You you are you grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, the hockey is a big deal there. You look at this. We're on the steep side of the hockey stick now on growth with photos. I mean, I, I saw a statistic somewhere. I'll have to go try and reference it. That we take more photos in a year than all previous years combined because we're we're on the exponential growth spurt of, of photos. And the big question that people have been asking is, what the heck do we do with all of them? Right? Yeah. And there's tons of opportunities. Um, we'll get to talk about each of those today. Yeah. So what what are the fundamental underlying technologies behind computer vision that are helping us pull it off today as opposed to having been able to pull it off in the 90s, the early 2000s? All right. So so really comes down to artificial intelligence. That machine learning aspect it can help with uh, what really the four applications of machine learning of computer vision. Those are recognition, being able to recognize something, right? What is that in a photo? Uh, motion analysis. Imagine taking a couple of photos and figuring out how something's traveling through those photos, how fast and in what direction. Uh, scene reconstruction, um, to your point about reconstructing things that might have been lost, um, I think there's a big photogrammetry project on the Notre Dame immediately before the roof fire. Yeah. Um, that's a great example of that, where they're using the photogrammetry now to, to actually recreate that in 3D. There's some There's some really, so let's talk about Notre Dame for just an, exa- just an example. This is a beautiful structure. It's a legendary building. It experienced a horrific fire and was significantly damaged. And uh, the big question is, how do you restore it back? Now, they had laser scans that were taken uh, of this structure. So that's when a spinning laser, so laser on a, on a spinner goes around and they go to different points and laser scan it. Laser scan's really precise, but it's hard to catch every detail in a laser scan because you really have to move the laser scanner a lot and it can take up to a few minutes per scan to scan with a laser scanner. But what they have billions of is photographs of Notre Dame. And they they didn't know exactly how it was the day that it burned but or the day before it burned, but they did have photographs of that. And so they took photographs. Photogrammetry is the mathematical process of taking more than one photo of a scene and then reconstructing it into a 3D point cloud, right? That's exactly right. So you're you're using a mathematical interpolation to calculate the X, Y, and Z axis of a point of light. So you can reconstruct those points of light into a point cloud, which then then be constructed into a mesh and an object. That's exactly what they did with Notre Dame. And they produced an extremely accurate, they took millions of photos that were taken in the last week uh, of its, uh, before it, before the damage. They were able to generate a very accurate computer model of what was exactly there. But then something else really cool happened, Graham. I don't know if you saw with 3D printing. Some very creative people took the stone that fell and they ground it 
and they used a 3D printer to 3D print replacement stone from the reconstructed model. They then sent it to a 3D printer and they used it, you know, the, those polymer adhesives where they take, if you can take stone and, or, or even wood, or you've seen these, you, we've, we've looked at them together and they, they 3D printed replacement stone with the actual raw material that fell out of the ceiling. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> like the future is now, right? And you think about insurance, a big part of insurance is making a client whole, right? Fixing what was damaged. I mean, you think how, if you could restore it back to the exact, to the millimeter precise object that was there before with the original building materials, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? That's it. So you, you have scene reconstruction, and then what else do you have? And then the last major one is uh, image restoration. And that's when you actually fix stuff? Right, yeah. And traditionally, art restoration is called in-painting, right? That process of um, taking damaged photographs and it's basically the same process that a human follows, right? Interpreting what should be there, even though they can't see it, and and making the best educated guess at how to fill in. Yeah, because you're trying to figure out what would have been here had the image actually been captured. Exactly. It's that, that human pattern recognition process, but just applied to a computer. Yeah, in, in scale and in mass. Instead of having one person, because image, re, image restoration is extremely expensive because it's a very, very specific skill set that not many people have. And, and it's a very pricey, very time-consuming process. And you're talking about taking that process and shrinking it into seconds and letting a machine actually do image restoration. Seconds may even be a very, very long time. Yeah. Like to quote my one of my favorite sci-fi shows, uh, I'm a massive Star Trek fan, when Commander Data was offered uh, human skin by the Borg, he, uh, Picard said, well, did you think about uh, accepting it? He said, I thought about it for 0.0001 nanoseconds. He goes, and for an Android, that's a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Star Wars fan, but I appreciate it. Uh, Cowboys in space, it's history, you know, whatever. It's all good. It's fantasy. It's a good fantasy story. I happen to be like a hardcore sci-fi fan. Uh, although, unfortunately, you've had to endure my barrage of Star Trek for the last several years. But I do appreciate Star Wars and uh, the vastly profitable enterprise that it created. So there's four applications for computer vision. Recognition, motion analysis, scene reconstruction, image restoration. These are all extremely useful in the area of insurance. And you even highlighted that in recognition. Yeah, absolutely. So... A uh, recognition problem is, is finding something in an image and potentially finding the different varieties of it, right? So in the concept of insurance, I could be, uh, imagine taking a photo of a, a damaged property and um, being able to recognize, so what part of the property is this? Well, it's a roof. And how damaged is it? Well, if you have some type of classification, you can see some shingles are missing or there's actual visible, you know, structural damage. You could potentially classify all that. Yeah, so you can classify it as the grade of damage and how severe the damage is, where the damage is. You can even detect damage that humans might not detect on their own simply because of the, the, the scale or size of that said damage. So from a claims process, this can be really useful in insurance. And even adjudicating a claim, like when a claim comes in, you could actually have a machine score damage before it even goes to a human. So they can, they can actually see, hey, the machine scored this as an 8 out of 10, and Here's the circle of the different spots where it detected either a crack or missing tiles or a hole in the roof, uh, burn damage. I mean, what, whatever it is, um, you're, you have now first you have to train uh, that machine learning algorithm on what a healthy roof looks like, right? That's exactly right. 
And in fact, uh, I in in my other podcast, I covered some news today that ImageNet was just used for a very interesting process to prove that machine learning had bias. And and they I don't know if you you saw this, but uh, they did an ImageNet experiment where they tagged people's photos uh, and that went viral on Twitter and it was called ImageNet Roulette. If you haven't done it, if you're a listener out there in listener land, just Google ImageNet Roulette and upload some selfies that you don't mind being on the internet, by the way. So keep in, keep that in mind. And then it will automatically tell you something about you based on its giant library. That's recognition. Now, it did some interesting things. I had Sebastian go in. Sebastian's our chief operating officer. I had him, uh, he had his sunglasses on. I had a selfie of me and him that we took recently. I uploaded it and it boxed his head in and said fighter pilot. And he did have aviator sunglasses on. And he looked kind of like a fighter pilot in that picture. And it said fighter pilot. And I was like, wow, that's a really interesting conclusion. And then you know, I kept uploading some of uh, that, that I had and it, and it gave some really interesting results. It was very good at identifying beards. Those are pretty easily recognizable, right? Yeah, but versus a fighter pilot, how would a machine learning algorithm determine that someone looks like a fighter pilot. That's an interesting recognition uh, pattern. Yeah, it's those. It's a bias towards bias, right? And um, it's a really tricky problem with uh, computer vision. So these neural networks, the, the way they're trained is basically, well, one manner of training is to give them a set of data, and that data has to be annotated, right? So, And this isn't a small set of data. This is potentially... Huge you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of images that are annotated. So if you provide it with, you know, 100,000 photos of fighter pilots with beards and aviator sunglasses, <laughs> your neural network is going to start to develop that bias towards, yeah. I see a beard, I see sunglasses. sunglasses. It's interesting, too, because we can't really know if that's the bias it's developing because it learns on its own, right, without our input. But we can make a guess that that's probably what it's identifying. Yeah. So I think recognition is one of the more useful tools that you're seeing. We're starting to see roof inspection companies use this as a preliminary analysis tool. We're starting to see property casualty companies use this in the claims management. Uh, in underwriting, it's particularly useful because when you send in an underwriting inspector out, typically they do a, like a, I think it's called an RFO4 roof report where they're peeling up the tile and they're looking and they're, they're taking a lot of pictures of the roof. They're climbing up of course, now you can fly a drone and get a much, I mean, drones are really integral into, into this type of imaging and uh, computer vision, correct? And so much safer too. Yeah, because you're not having to send a human being up. The drone has a high resolution camera. So talk about the correlation between the resolution on the camera and uh, accuracy and, and computer vision. Yeah, it's just, it's just the amount of uh, detail you can get out of that. The resolution of the camera is very important. Also, if you're flying a drone, the uh, actual accuracy of the positioning of the drone is very important too. So the drone knows where it is when it takes the photo. For the photogrammetry aspect, that's that's critical to be able to do use your, your stereoscopic vision. Yeah. Do you think that the use of lasers is getting more and more and more narrow because we have, you know, gigapixel images, we have, we have massive high resolution images that, that can get just as much data out of? That's a, a super interesting question. So it all comes down to precision at the end of the day, right? Remember that your drones are limited by their positioning, which is often based on GPS, right? And GPS is limited because the federal government doesn't want it to be used for ICBMs. So GPS is just statically limited to a lower resolution. Uh, drones factor in their IMUs, which is their position speed, and try to get a best guess. 
So that that can have your accuracy of point clouds down to uh, plus or minus of several inches in a very good case. If you need your millimeter accuracy, that's where, where laser scans are are super critical. Sure. So and we've seen that with uh, accident recreation. We've seen that with underwriting in claims where people will send a laser scanner out and laser scan it, which is a great idea. If you can do it, it's a great idea. And laser scanners are getting way cheaper and way faster. Like Leica makes one, the BLK360, that just does an amazing job. And it doesn't just take a laser image. It also has thermal imaging. So you can even use thermal images for computer vision, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because you can identify if that thermal image is a human being. So it's really any type of image can be fed into computer vision algorithms. Exactly. It's any type of data that the algorithm can use to determine some type of pattern. So let's talk about motion analysis. That's another really big one, I think, for loss control, loss prevention. You're trying to prevent a loss. You're trying to prevent a safety event. Motion analysis is an interesting field that I think would be super useful in any type of job site, work site environment, manufacturing and construction and others, because you can detect the movement of a human and actually figure out if they're running across your workplace instead of walking, right? That's absolutely right. It's just taking those several images and interpreting based on the time they were taken and the movement of a subject through the photo. Yeah. Simple math to figure out the, the time in between. So we've seen pro solution providers in the market that are using motion analysis to look at the pattern a worker uses when they lift objects. How would it do that? That's interesting. I imagine that the algorithm is probably trying to inform itself about the skeletal positioning of the worker, right? Trying to interpret their, their actual skeletal positioning and then through those multiple photos, determining the movement taken and the potential stress on any joints in the, that um, skeletal view. Yeah, and, and what's neat about it is they overlay their own digital skeleton on that user of just with the big, you know, the trunk, the body trunk and all the inflection points in the body, like the hips and the knees and the ankles. And uh, then it allows you to see if workers are, in, are lifting with their uh, back instead of their legs, right? That's the old lifting analogy. Lift with your legs, not with your back. And you want to see if workers are doing that. Machines can actually interpret that now. That's pretty heavy stuff. It's a little scary, isn't it? It is because you wonder, like, how far is this going to go? And I think it's never going to stop. I mean, you're already seeing advertisers using computer vision to determine uh, gender and age of people walking by their ads. I remember some really good sci-fi movies from the 90s and early 2000s that did exactly this. They had digital ad boards, had cameras on them, and as you walked by, they not only identified your age and your gender and then presented age and gender-specific ads to you, they also identified who you were through their facial recognition database. So facial recognition is also part of this whole field, though. Oh, yeah. And it, it seems so high tech and futuristic to us. But you know, if you're in, in Shenzhen in China right now, you can you can pay for a meal just with facial recognition. You can also check in for your flights now in the United States. There's airports that are doing facial recognition for flight check in. It's Delta piloting that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Delta's piloting it. So there's no no boarding passes, no IDs. Your face is your ID. Uh, that intimidates a lot of people, though. So how do you overcome some of those objections to computer vision, what are the ways that you think that we can help people get over the potentially scary part of this? That's a tricky question, James. If I knew <laughs> the answer to that, you know, I'd, I'd be informing a whole lot of companies right now. But Maybe assure them on where the data is stored. Yeah, I, I think one thing that you're seeing a lot of, like I saw a video on, on Delta's pilot. And I remember they, they were very explicit about the results of the facial recognition stay within this loop, right? They aren't used in any other business process, any marketing process. It's just to determine your flight information and pass you through security. And I, I think if companies are, are open about that and 
and make it very clear what your data is being used for. It's kind of analogous to like in when you download a mobile app today, right? And it asks you, hey, are you okay with using your photos? Yes. Are you okay with using your microphone? Yes. If, if that same type of disclaimer is there, then it's at least some comfort. Yeah, I think I think that you know Apple has done a great job of leading this charge on the mobile phone side, saying we're going to embed a bunch of machine learning components in the actual processor. So they're putting, you're seeing AI chipsets installed on drones and on mobile phones and on tablets so that they can do all the processing locally instead of pushing it to the cloud and sending all of your facial and image data with it. They're actually doing local processing and they're even guaranteeing that it's not being shared. Right, and and that's the cyclical process, isn't it? Out to the cloud, back in, out to the cloud, back to the edge. Yeah, then who owns it when it's in the cloud? Exactly. Does it stay there? Are they people looking at these images? I, I don't know. So there's a real use case for computer vision in construction, whether it's sending a drone in to automatically analyze damage or using your iPhone and your, your drone and a professional camera to take underwriting photos and to make sure that that property is taken care of or documenting an accident, right? Let's say you've got a work comp accident, pretty severe, and you have a, a, a 360 camera, which are not expensive. You can get an LG 360 camera. That's uh, For those who don't know what that is, it's, they're two fisheye lenses back to back. So it can do a 360 stitched image in under a second. You can use the heck out of that for computer vision. So you could actually recreate that site just by taking two or three 360 photos. You could actually digitally recreate and walk through in VR an accident site, correct? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it would take a little more than two or three photos now with today's technology, but yep. you're absolutely right about where we're headed. I once heard a comparison when it came to uh, surveying, for example, you know, if you come out with a long ruler and measure everything out, you're going to capture such a small subset of the data. But if you show up with a, a 360 camera or a laser scanner or something like that, you have this enormous set of data you collect that you can use to answer so many future questions you may not even know about. I'm uh, seeing solution providers even use 360 video computer vision. Bingo, because then you have all that source data that you can interpret into creating a 3D model. Yeah, well, it's 30, it's 30 images every second. So you really, they're breaking apart the video into its component frames and then using all the different angles of an object to capture it and then to model and map it. Exactly, and that's scene reconstruction. Yeah, a scene reconstruction. So you've got, you've got some really great applications and recognition, like facial recognition, uh, object recognition, uh, the, the status of an object, motion analysis, and loss control and safety, being able to determine if workers are even running across the job site. We're seeing, we're seeing risk management divisions at large owners, like tech companies, they're building data centers, putting webcams on their job site, feeding that into a, into a computer vision system. And then the webcam looks for any bad activity, like running across a job site, jumping too far, lifting improperly. It can all be done by cloud-connected security cameras now with software sitting behind them, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, doesn't creep anybody out, does it? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, put this tracker on you. We're going to document your face and uh, monitor everything you do. And the machine's going to text you if you lift improperly or go somewhere. So there's social impact to this uh, that really necessitates training, education, reminders, right? They need to understand what the limitations are, how it's used, where it's stored, what's being done with it. We're not trying to create digital overlords. We're trying to keep the humans safer, right? And, and, and ultimately, this ties back to productivity as well of that company. So what, what's some, some background? Because this, this, this whole story started in 1966. That's right. It's a funny story. A handful of computer scientists, uh, 
you know, we can we can solve this computer vision problem. And they decided we'll do it in a summer project. So they got some summer workers, said, let's let's break it down and and we'll figure this out over the summer. And at the end of the summer, we'll have software that'll tell you exactly what's in an image. They failed. Yeah. Pretty drastically. <laughs> right. Given that we're still working very hard on this today. Yeah. Given that 53 years later, we're still hot after it. Exactly. You know, when it really popped back up was with uh, translation services, right? You remember Google Translate when that broke into the mainstream and and how incredible that was, but it was still pretty funny in the beginning, right? Some of the interpretations it would make. It was. It's not anymore because it's so remarkably accurate. And that's not computer vision, but that is still machine learning. Exactly. You're still teaching a machine how to deal with a natural language or image output from human beings. It's the same neural networks. They're recognizing the patterns in language that are recognizing the patterns in images. You know, I think that that around 2016 was when um, Google replaced its translation services with neural networks. And that's when neural networks really broke into the mainstream, right? Yeah. So people started recognizing we can apply this to vision problems right now as well. So 50 years after the original computer vision experiment, it had a big deal. Yeah. And, and that's that's awesome. So the current state of the art computer vision, what what is that about? Well, this is where we get to talk about hot dogs. Yes, I love hot dogs, especially all beef hot dogs. I like going to Wrigley Field, by the way. I'm a rabid Cubs fan, and I like going there and eating a good all beef hot dog. Across the street is Byron's Hot Dogs. Yeah. Best hot dogs in Chicago. Oh, mm, tasty. And I love a good Chicago dog. Pickles on it. And... Drag it through the garden, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> drag it through the garden. <laughs> I never heard them say that, oh, yeah. but that is definitely what they do with a hot dog. That's I mean, it. it is everything in the garden on that dang hot dog. So how does this relate to hot dogs? Yes. How does it relate to hot dogs? Silicon Valley, the TV show. You ever seen an episode? Oh, yeah. So there's a... Sadly true and hilarious. It's sadly very true and very hilarious. We can have that separate venture capital discussion there too. <laughs> but um, there's, a, there's an episode in Silicon Valley where one of the characters develops a mobile app called Not Hot Dog. And what this app does is it can detect if anything passed in, any photo taking is a hot dog or not. <laughs> And it's, it's really funny because he presents this to a bunch of VCs and they say, this is great. We can use this for so much. And he says, no, you, you don't understand. It's, it's only for hot dogs. <laughs> the funny thing about this, the app is real. And I read the blog post from the developers who actually put that together. They built the real app and released it in the, in the app store for Google and Android. And they have a, a fascinating blog post that's all about how they actually built it. So they built a a convolutional neural network is what it's called. And that's the most uh, useful type of neural network right now for these types of problems. And what it actually does is it, it recognizes, as they say, the, the bread, the uh, sausage, the actual glistening of the sausage, the bread texture, and the general hot dog shape. And that's how they f- the features is what it's called that they factor into detecting if something is a hot dog. And they've got some hilarious images from their process of putting some mustard on their arm and it thinks it's a hot dog. Uh. They realize, okay, we need to factor in the bread. And <laughs> But it's absolutely fascinating how they uh, actually went and really put this together. Yeah, I mean, there's there's way more to it because I think we take for granted as we try to replicate a human, I think we take for granted all the things that our brain does. For example, we have a brilliant computer vision, right? Our brain's a computer, as a computer vision. Because vision isn't just being able to have light hit a sensor. It's interpreting what that all means, right? So photographs are not computer vision. Videos are not computer vision. It's what you do with them later that's computer vision. So I think we take for granted how our brains work, how brilliant they are. I mean, they're geared for facial recognition, aren't they? But only when the face is right side up. Not upside down. The uh, human mind fails 
immediately with an upside down face trying to do facial recognition. It's a really interesting example of uh, pattern recognition in humans. So if you take a photograph on your phone and you randomly load it before you look at it right side up, you look at it upside down. Oh yeah, I'm doing it right now. That is confusing as heck. <laughs> it is. There so you, you, just taking random photos and trying to recognize who they are would be really, it is very challenging. That's the human neural network. Yeah, it's the way that our brains have been trained to operate. And so we don't really think through that. So one important thing for everybody in insurance out there, there's no easy button to this. Because it, it you know, I, I think the answer, like my favorite software developer answer, it depends. You know, can you implement this for my company? Well, yes, it depends. Because you, you can take the same models that work for faces and people and hot dogs, and it's not going to work for determining the hurricane damage on a building. That's exactly right. And the state of where things are right now is, is you can find a lot of general neural networks that are pre-built and that recognize simple objects, like this is an apple, this is a cup. But if you're, you're prompted to do something much more complicated, like recognize and categorize all the damage to a home after hurricane damage, as you said, you're going to have to start from scratch. And to do that, you're going to need hundreds of thousands of photos of damage, all different that uh, you can begin to train a model on. Yeah. The, the data set, that's why tools like ImageNet are very helpful because they have billions of pre-hinted, pre-tagged images that allow you to train on whatever data set you're trying to train on. So if you go to ImageNet, you can actually search through and look for a bunch of images tagged with, again, hot dogs, and then use that to train on the recognition of all the components of a hot dog and when they're together that it constructs a hot dog. By the way, I installed that app not hot dog. And, uh, I'm not a hot dog. So there you go. So it, uh, thank it goodness. <laughs> thank goodness because that would be concerning and you as well. Uh, let's see if you're a hot dog and you're not a hot dog. So, uh, it's successfully identified that we're both not hot dogs. Now the key is, uh, since we're so hungry, we need to leave, go get <laughs> hot dogs, take a picture of it and see if it works. But but Image ImageNet and, and other tools like this, and they're not the only ones out there that have databases of hinted data. Uh, and I, I reported on a news article recently uh, on online saying, you know, artificial intelligence is made of people. Remind me of my, my favorite Charlton Heston sci-fi movie, Soylent Green, where Charlton Heston at the end is being carted out of the building yelling, Soylent Green is people! Soylent Green is people! A lot of this is people, right? I mean, it takes... There, there are entire companies offshore, namely India, where they have thousands of people sitting all day long, just tagging and hinting pictures just to be used for computer vision systems. You're exactly right. And it's, it's funny. You see a lot of the cloud vendors today, Microsoft and Amazon, and they release so many tools for building machine learning neural networks, but they release so many tools too for just simply collecting big data sets of images and yeah. annotating them. Like Amazon Mechanical Turk. So if you want to pay people to hint insurance related imagery you can actually go on amazon mechanical turk which by the way is just amazon outsourcing really mundane boring tasks to a bunch of human beings that want to work from home right that's exactly right yeah so like let's it's called mechanical turk but it's made of people it's a bunch of people that'll sit back and analyze any kind of imagery that you want to send across and then they'll hint and fill your data sets out so you don't have to hire up it's a it's a pretty tough job to hire up for uh, to generate the data sets that you'd need for this to work in a carrier or a third-party administrator or a broker. And I can think of, by the way, everybody in the insurance 
uh, ecosystem that could really benefit from computer vision and its related technologies. But it's not a magic bullet. It's There's no easy button. You have to build the model, and then you have to build the data sets, and then you have to rebuild the model, and then you have to change your model. And there's some really interesting machine learning websites that allow you to apply every known machine learning model, because there's a bunch of them, and then identify which one is the most accurate. So there's 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 also that. And then, by the way, what worked today, next month there may be a new model out that you want to work with, right? That's exactly right. And where I really think the future of this goes is proprietary models and proprietary data sets, right? Being able to lease access to these mm. enormous data sets. So you think insurance carriers, instead of leasing or licensing it, one of their competitive advantages will be that they build the best machine learning model? Absolutely. Which would allow them to automatically adjudicate claims, would allow, allow them to dramatically streamline the underwriting process. And there's a lot of things you can do with that, but that almost looks like it might be a competitive advantage that they don't want anyone else to have, right? 100%. But then there will also be technology vendors out there who offer the same data sets to everybody. So you, you may end up with a hybrid where you license some tech and then you maintain some tech internally. The end output is a compiled model file, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a file on the computer. And, and it doesn't learn in real time, does it? Like it, you actually have to schedule the time for learning? That's exactly right. The process is is basically you give it a data set and it splits it in, in half. And what it does with that first half is it learns from it. And that second half, it tests to see how accurate it is. And, uh, you know, that's the whole second half of this process is training. Because at first, it's not going to be accurate at all. You know, it'll be finding hot dogs everywhere. And over the course of the process, it gets more and more accurate as it learns and adjusts and, and tries to get that second half more and more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's uh, some great examples. If you want to play with this type of image recognition, uh, a website you can go to, by the way, is captionbot.ai. Oh, side note, before we go to CaptionBot, because we'll, we'll, we'll load some test images into CaptionBot and see how it does in just a second. I thought it was interesting when I started seeing the CAPTCHA companies. If you don't know what a CAPTCHA is, it's that annoying thing where you have to interpret the squiggly letters and lines, and you have to tell it what the word is that it's trying to, or the numbers and letters, so they can prevent bots from logging into accounts. Well, CAPTCHA, they've, they actually realized they had an opportunity to use it like a giant mechanical Turk bot, and so... They started putting in images that they thought they understood with their current model and they could test you on, but then have humans click on, if you've seen it, we have to log into something that says, click on all the buses, click on all the storefronts. What does this street sign say? It is using you for free to crowdsource its learning model for computer vision. That's why those CAPTCHA services are free to developers. You know, Google <laughs> is the leading one with their reCAPTCHA service. Yeah, reCAPTCHA is super popular, and they are totally, they are totally uh, doing this. They're crowdsourcing uh, image capture. It's a, it's amazing. They're feeding all that data into maps, into their storefront detection, and all yeah, that. yeah, it's it's awesome. So let's talk about CaptionBot because this is a fun one. Our listeners can listen, can go check check this out because they they've now learned the history, they understand the uses. We talked about all of this, but now they want to go and play with something that might resemble computer vision and see what it can do. And um, there, there's some some pretty interesting use cases, um, but CaptionBot's a really fun one because it allows you to upload immediately. So we just type, go into your web browser on your phone and just type in, I'll do it with you, just type in captionbot.ai. Uh, captionbot.ai. This is built by Microsoft. And uh, then it's going to load it in your web browser. When it loads, <clears throat> you're going to actually upload uh, a given image. And I'm going to pick an image out from my photo library 
something I recently took, just a picture, uh, one of the pictures of my house, and I'll, it uploads, as soon as you select the image on your phone, it uploads the image, runs it through its AI algorithm, uh, because it has a model that was compiled last night, seemingly, uh, and then it's going to spit back a caption. So this one doesn't produce tags, it actually writes a searchable caption of the image, uh, and, and here you go, it says, I think it's a living room filled with furniture and a fireplace. There was no fireplace in the image, but it was right that it's a living room filled with furniture. So there's, you know, you can see they're, they're not 100% accurate, but it's pretty darn accurate for me not telling it anything. And of course, then what you can do is you can grade, uh, you can grade the image uh, on how well it does. And we'll go ahead and upload another one of, uh, of a group. Uh, let's, let's get a, a water scene here of a patio in front of a lake and see what it, uh, what it says. So there's some interesting things you can really experiment with in CaptionBot. You can also uh, go and play this uh, ImageNet Roulette. Uh, that is ImageNet Roulette. And that will allow you to see how it tags people and see if it's actually uh, going to be anywhere remotely accurate for you. The end of the day, what's the conclusion for the insurance professional out there listening to this and thinking about uh, using computer vision? Computer vision is very, very difficult but it's getting easier and it's, it's going to be a huge potential for competitive advantage across all the areas of insurance, but especially adjudication of claims, being able to flag them ahead of time. Which ones can we shoot right through? Which ones need human review? It's very challenging, but there's definite applications that could lead to a competitive advantage today. Yeah. And tomorrow, this is about being able to scale a company without having to hire a ton more people. We're not talking about laying off all of your staff. We're talking about being able to more effectively utilize them for thinking tasks. In particular, when you're trying to search through images and you're trying to search these objects, that's when this comes in really handy. If you have a, a collection of tags and captions on the images, it's a complete game changer for you, right? Absolutely. And we saw that with Google Photos when they released and you could just say, show me all my photos with a particular family member in them and it was yep. sorted automatically. And your iPhone does this already too. Yep. So if you're an iPhone, you have the Photos app on iPhone. Uh, it does that locally. It allows you, you can just type in the word dogs. And I'm a huge dog fan. I've got a bunch of dogs. And if I type in dogs, it returns thousands of photos that all have a dog in them. It doesn't catch all my photos that have a dog in them, but all the photos that did catch do have a dog in them. And uh, it, it's, it's really amazing, uh, amazing technology. And what's neat about it is that it can be incorporated into existing systems. So if you have a claim system out there that supports attachment of photos and you have uh, the ability to type either a caption or details or tags in the photo, you can bolt on a machine learning system into that existing system and have it populate the uh, the caption, text, or tags into the system you already have. And talk about something you can do today that's really pretty straightforward to do with services like Amazon and Microsoft and Google all offer off-the-shelf services like this for general object recognition. Yep. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah they're busy training it on every object in the planet. They're not getting specific to the insurance business, but you would still get a ton of value out of it because it's identifying any type of object uh, that's in, in the system. The same thing with motion and video analysis. It breaks that video apart. There are already services out there you can tap into that will tell you what's going on in a, in a video. And uh, the same thing with photogrammetry. There's a lot of uh, applications that do scene creation and, and um, that build. One of my favorites picks 4D, by the way. Uh, PIX 4D, 
does a phenomenal job of taking multiple photographs and producing a point cloud, which can be produced into a mesh, which can be produced into a 3D model. You can 3D print a scene of an accident. There's all kinds of neat stuff that can be done with this. We think it's a transformative technology for the insurance business. That's why we've done so much research on it ourselves. And we've built a few of these different applications ourselves, including for inspections and daily logs and safety inspections, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, by, by my recollection, it was a fairly quick development process because of how, well, how, frankly, how many services you can tap into that you don't have to build from the ground up, right? Yeah, that's right. It's very easy to get started with and becomes very challenging as you move into these yeah. niche and domain-specific areas. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll get frustrated quickly if you're not prepared for the fact that uh, Murphy's Law applies here, too. So that's really your how to get started out there. If you're listening to the InsureTech Geek podcast, all the major clouds have computer vision APIs that can be used in a trial to recognize common, common everyday objects and photos. And that's a really wonderful place to start. The same thing, uh, services like Azure have uh, captioning services that'll write captions on photos. It's a really great place to get started and uh, does not require an enormous amount of effort. Uh, but the, the bigger project will require an enormous amount of effort and time. You'll have to build your own data sets. You'll have to build your own models. Uh, you know, to deploy it into applications, and that can take some time. But if you uh, want to be part of the digital transformation of the insurance business, I do not think you have a choice on whether or not you work with computer vision. I think this is a mandatory tool that will be used against you in the court of technology. <laughs> so uh, be ready for that. Graham, thank you for coming on today and uh, so thoroughly and uh, succinctly summarizing how this technology works for uh, the industry out there. Hey, my pleasure. I'm ready to get out of here and get a hot dog. Yeah, exactly. It's time to go eat. Let's get some hot dogs, preferably a Chicago dog, one that's been drugged through the whole garden. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge, jbknowledge.com. It's all about technology that is transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham, jamesbenham.com. Thank you for joining us this week. I look forward to talking to you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.